0: You know, a a large portion of my life as a minister occurs in hospitals, nursing homes, funeral homes, and cemeteries. These four places are places that I frequent, not places I love, to be honest with you. I love the people that are there, I don't love the places, and you could probably guess why. Because these places represent the inevitable. They showcase what living in a fallen world leads to. That at some point, you're going to have to confront death, dying. They highlight the fact that dying and and loss and grief and mourning... Are the unfortunate byproduct of an earthly existence. When much of your time is spent in hospitals and nursing homes and funeral homes and cemeteries, it's easy to get the impression that death is winning. But it's not. Let me say that again it's not. You can't only go by what you see. Everything I see argues against the defeat of death. I don't believe in the resurrection from the dead because of what I see. I believe in the resurrection for the dead because of what I read. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which soon must take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, From Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood, and He has made us to be the kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We often have the same attitude toward the book of Revelation that we do towards hospitals and nursing homes and funeral homes and cemeteries. It is a book that we see as bleak and eerie and dim and kind of scary. In fact, that's often how it's delivered in Bible classes and even from the pulpit. But such a view does not do the book justice. Revelation has been mishandled and misinterpreted for so long that its intended meaning has been lost in a mountain of false doctrine. And not only that, we have spent so much time arguing whether the entire message has been fulfilled or whether there's more yet to come that we've missed out on some key details. And by the way, the answer to that question is yes. The answer to the question, has Revelation been fulfilled or is there more to come? The answer is it's both, right? But we focus on so many of the minute details in decoding this book that we miss out on the overall picture the bigger narrative, the grander scheme of things. The theme of Revelation, folks, is we win. This is an inspiring book. This is an encouraging book. It's not bleak. It's not dim. It's not not eerie. It's not scary. It's a book of hope. It's a book of victory. The message, the final message is we win. Actually, the message is God wins, but because God wins, we win, right? There is good news from the graveyard. There is good news from the cemetery. There is good news from the hospital and from the nursing home and from the funeral home, and it is this, we win. That is the theme of Revelation. That's really the theme of the entire Bible that is, that is emphasized and the exclamation is put on at the end here in this book. Now, All this sounds awesome, all this sounds great, but there's two things here that we have to admit. Number one, this wasn't written to us, and so the original audience really benefited from this first. And secondly, we have to admit that that we're reading it after the fact, right? You know, we we receive this message, if you will, while sitting in a cushioned pew, in a climate-controlled building, without any fear of persecution. The people hearing this message for the first time were in a setting that is far different than what we're in tonight. Christians were under attack and they were crying out to God for relief. And Revelation is a response to the persecuted Christians. God has heard their cries. He is sending a message of hope with a promise of victory on the horizon. You know what a spoiler is? Let's say that you want to see this movie that just came out and lo and behold a friend of yours has seen it already and they're talking to you about it and they're giving you the details of it and they let it slip that the hero at the end dies they just ruined it for you that's a spoiler Or let's say that you recorded the Dallas Cowboys game and you came to church and this is one time where you don't want to fellowship with anybody because you're afraid that if you do, the conversation's going to be something like, well, can you believe the Cowboys blew it? And you're like, no, I recorded the game. I don't want to hear that. When I was in college, I took a literature class and we had to read some Agatha Christie book and I just, I couldn't do it. I just turned to the end to find out what happened. (laughs) Folks, I have turned to the back of the Bible. I can tell you what happens. I've read the ending, and I can tell you how it ends. We win. It's exciting. It's the happy ending we all hope for. We win. That's the spoiler, but it's a, it's a great spoiler if there ever was one. The devil ends up in the lake of fire and brimstone. His, his victory is only temporary. It doesn't last. It's kind of like the guy who had a trophy room in his house, and, and on the wall he had the, the tail of a lion. And his friend said, well, what's the deal? Where's the head to the lion? He said, I don't know. When I found the lion, all that was left was the tail. So, may removed the head. That's what's happened. The, the head of the lion has been removed. It's in God's trophy room. That, that Satan that's described as a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour, he can't devour you. His head has been removed. We win. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, I, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I want to encourage you that as you read Scripture, whatever scripture you're reading, read it with the end in mind. Every piece of scripture you read, read it with these words found in Revelation chapter 21 on your heart. Read it with the end in mind because there's good news from the graveyard, there's hope from every nursing home, hospital, funeral home and cemetery, and it is this, no more. No more, no more pain, no more death, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin, no more curse. In spite of the fall of man and all that that turmoil, that that, that event ushered into the world, we win. In spite of all the troubles and trials and tribulations that we have to endure in this life, we win. In spite of all the the heartache and all the death and all the hurt, we win. For For those who die in the Lord, the message is crystal clear we win. Okay, so we already gave away the ending. So now let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Exodus, not the beginning of Revelation. Let's go back further than that. In all of our efforts to understand the symbolism and the apocalyptic language associated with Revelation of all of our talk about premillennialism and dispensationalism and the rapture, we miss some key points and we tend to miss the broader view. So go back, go back to the time of Moses, go back to Exodus chapter three. And I want you to look with me in verse six and following. It reads, He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Canaanite, or the Jebusite, I should say. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So what in the world does this have to do with Revelation? Well, everything. Because you've heard me say over and over again that the Bible is one continuous story and this proves it, right? Because the same thing that's happening here in Exodus is the same thing that's happening in Revelation. The people are crying out in slavery. God, when are you going to do something? How long? The people in Revelation, these persecuted Christians, are crying out in Rome. How long? It's the same story, right? Who was persecuting God's people in Egypt? The Pharaoh, right? Who was persecuting the Christians in Rome? The emperor, right? Both worshiped as a God. In both instances, God's people cried out for relief. In both instances, God heard their cries. In Exodus, Moses was the messenger. In Revelation, John is the one God speaks to. You have a desert, you have an island, you have a burning bush, you have a glorified Lord. It was an angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. It was an angel who was sent to tell John that God had heard the cries of the people. In both cases, God promises deliverance. You have a trumpet-like sound that got the attention at Mount Sinai and at Patmos. God cared for His people in the wilderness. Revelation speaks of a place prepared for the church. This place is referred to as the wilderness. God's people will be nourished there. God's people travel to a place flowing with milk and honey. We are traveling to a place where the river of life and the tree of life exist. Look at verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1 again. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. For him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Does that sound familiar? Go back to Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am am has sent me to you. Now, the Greek grammar and revelation is a little rough at times, and here is one of those cases. The original text literally reads the being that he was and the coming. Okay, that's a little head spinning, right? But the meaning would not have been lost on the original audience. The original audience would have known exactly what John was writing about. They would have known exactly what he was referring to, and they would have definitely made the connection with the I am in Exodus chapter 3. They would have seen those as comparable. John describing God as this powerful being that was going to deliver them, that would have had the implication with the audience that was intended, that was intended to have. Revelation 1-4 is the Greek form of I am in Exodus three fourteen. is no doubt the ones reading John's letter for the first time would have hearkened back in their minds to Israel being delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh. They would have seen clearly the connection that John was making between these two stories and how God was not intimidated by Pharaoh, nor would he be intimidated by the emperor either. The God who had delivered his people in the past would certainly deliver them again. And although everywhere they turned, it seemed as though that they were losing, God was still God. He was still on the throne. God was still who is and who was and who was to come. So you have two cries, you have one God. And God hears the desperation of his people. He hears them crying out from the desert. He hears them crying out from Rome, just as he hears his people crying out from the nursing homes, from the hospital, just as he hears the cries of mourning from the funeral home and at the cemetery. God hears us when we cry. And like the persecuted people in Revelation, you may wonder, why doesn't he do something? And the answer is he has. He has done something. Two little boys were discussing how the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And one little boy said, yeah, my dad says that the sun doesn't really move at all, that it just looks like it's moving, that it's the earth that's moving. And the other little boy said, well, I'm going to believe my eyes. And the first boy said, well, I think I'm going to believe my dad. You know, thankfully the persecuted Christians in Rome didn't believe their eyes because what their eyes told them is that death is winning, that there's no hope. There's no hope for individual Christians and there's no hope for the church. The church is doomed just as you are doomed. But instead of believing their eyes, they believed in the Father. They believed what He had said. They believed in a promise. Jesus' message to the seven churches was constant and consistent. Remain faithful and receive the reward. And here's what Jesus promises to those who stay loyal unto death. They will not be harmed by the second death. They will receive the hidden manna and a white stone. They will receive authority to rule over the nations with Jesus. They will be clothed in white. They will have a place of importance in the temple of God in the new Jerusalem, and they will sit with Jesus on his throne. These promises form a thread that runs throughout the The book, it's a theme that we see play out over and over again, that if you remain loyal to King Jesus, you will reign with him for all eternity. And their promise is our promise. These words may not have been written to us, but they certainly apply to us. You know, I wasn't around when the Constitution was written, but I still benefit from it, right? You know, I didn't fight in the American Revolutionary War, but I still benefit from the freedom. And I wasn't in Philadelphia the day that Jesus' message was conveyed to the Christians there. I wasn't a member at the church in Smyrna when they received their letter, but I am a member of God's universal church. I am a Christian, and therefore the promise made to them comes all the way down to me, and that inheritance that they were promised is the exact same inheritance that I am promised as well. So I can look forward to the same thing that they look forward to. And like them... The promise that they received is a promise that I receive and that should motivate me as well. You ever had anyone, you ever had someone say just the right thing to you at just the right time? It's like they just, they just knew what you were dealing with and they, they always came through with just the right thing. Libby and I were living in Charlotte, Arkansas. I was coaching at the school there and my superintendent was also an elder at the really small church there, and he became like a father figure to me. And it was pretty often that on Sunday afternoon, I would hop in his pickup with him, we'd go check his cows, we'd drive down the back roads of Charlotte. Actually, Charlotte was only back roads. But we'd drive around the back roads and we'd talk about life and you know, I'd I'd pick his brain about coaching because he used to be a coach. He would always say, Chris, you're the coach. That's not my job to tell you how to coach. But I I wanted to know, and I would ask him over and over again, but he was always pretty, he always kept things pretty close to the vest. But we talked about life, we talked about the future and all those things, and there came a point where ministry kind of fell in my lap. I had only been a Christian for two years, and the opportunity came up to be the youth minister at Batesville, Arkansas, which was 12 miles down the road, church of about 350, and it was an amazing opportunity. I could get away from the stress of coaching and and be home more. Ended up jumping out of one frying pan into another, really, but at the time, it it was a good move for the most part. But, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, what should I do? You know, coaching was great, but I, I, I was never home, and when I was home, I was no good. I mean, it came to the point where the agitation and the stress of losing outweighed the thrill of winning, and that's probably a pretty good sign you need to get out I was physically ill I was having struggles you know close to having an ulcer and all those kind of things but I I mean I'd been a I've been a Christian two years I don't know anything about ministry or youth ministry or anything like that what if I get in there and I fail I've just left a good job I mean we were doing well we were doing good things we had just finished the year number two in the state we'd gone to the state tournament first time in, in school history and all those kids were coming back every one of them. Plus, you know, I had insurance, I had benefits. I mean, what was I, what was I going to do? All I ever wanted to do was be a coach. So I called up Mr. Lillard and I said, Hey, uh, can we talk? Yeah, come on by. It was a Sunday afternoon. I jumped in his pickup. We went and checked his cows. We were driving down the back roads and I, I, I shared with him the conflict, the inner turmoil that I was having I loved Cord Charlotte. I loved being the coach there. But it was weighing on me, should I take this opportunity? Mr. Lillard looked at me and he said, Chris, I, I would hate to lose you. But you've got to do this. You've got to do this. This is bigger than Cord Charlotte. This is bigger than you even. You got to do it. That's what I needed to hear. Sometimes people can say just the right thing at just the right time. That's the message of Revelation. It was just the right thing to be said at just the right time for a people who were oppressed for a people who were struggling, for a people who were distressed, for a people who had no hope, people like you and me. And so the message rings out through the centuries and it comes all the way down to us. What do you think happened after the revelation faded from John's eyes? What do you think happened after John got this vision, and after it faded from his eyes, what do you think happened? I'll tell you what happened. Everything was the same for a while. Nothing changed. Christians were still being persecuted. They were still oppressed. They were still distressed. They were still crying out how long. But don't you think that John receiving that message changed the attitude and the tone? Don't you think that he could bear what was going on around him a little better? Knowing that there was hope on the horizon? I think so. I think that was enough motivation for him, for these persecuted Christians to hang on. And hopefully that's hope for us as well. There's good news from the graveyard. We win. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day that we've had to come and worship you, for this body that meets here at Oldham Lane, and we pray, Lord, that we can be a church after your own heart, that we can be a, a congregation that seeks to do your will always and seeks to make a difference in the world around us. But may it change us first, and may we be a people who live with hope and go out and share that hope to the world around us, a, hope, a world that is in darkness, a world that is oppressed and distressed, a world that is full of people who are walking dead, and who need hope. May we be the purveyors of that hope. May we be lights in the world around us. May we show people that there is hope on the horizon, that there is victory. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I hope you feel like that this is just the right thing at just the right time. Maybe for some of you, this message was just the right message at the right time. Maybe you need, maybe you need help tonight. I don't know what it is, but maybe, maybe you need to answer the invitation because you need prayers. Maybe, maybe you veered off track. Maybe you're ready to, to begin a daily walk with God. I don't know what your need is, but I know that we're here to help you. Why don't you come as we stand and sing?